Thanks to Cry Malt. This is Radio Brews News. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, founder of Australian Brews News, and as ever, I'm joined by my good friend, colleague, and all-round good beer guy, Pete Mitchum. Pete, welcome back. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for um, welcoming me back yet again, and it's good to be back. It is. Any day above ground is a good day. It is. And I did you it. notice that extra bit of excitement in my voice today? I did notice you, you're not quite giddy like a schoolgirl, but, um, but bordering thereon. Uh, are your bags packed and are you ready to leave, Matt? Are you my bags about are packed to and I'm ready pretty to much go? press record, then press uh, stop, send this off to the editors and uh, then head straight down to the airport? Uh, absolutely. And uh, Lockie, Q, I'm leaving on a jet plane because actually, well... This time tomorrow, uh, I will be on a plane bound for Germany. And uh, by the time this is actually being listened to by most of our uh, listeners, I will be at the opening ceremony of Oktoberfest. The Unzuppen. The Unzuppen. Yes, I uh, mate, I have been negotiating this for quite some time, um, trying to get into. Uh, it, it's it's a big event. Um, you know, most most Australians think of Oktoberfest as just being the beer halls and the drinking. It is a very traditional, big cultural event, and I've managed to get myself an, um, an invitation to Anzapfen, which is uh, um, a, a little bit difficult. Rare as, rare as rocking horse shit. Absolutely. Invites like that. And, uh, but who are you flying with, Matt? I'm flying with Ty, so I'm ex- hopefully... Um, I, I've told them that I'm six foot four and that hopefully I can get an exit row seat because I've heard that the seats are a little bit short. Oh, okay. So Thai, Thai Airways, is it? It is Thai Airways. What's your interest, Prof? No, I just wondered whether Thai Airways, um, if they were listening, Thai Airways, um, yeah, may have looked after you at all. Uh, well, you, you, you've got to get yourself there and then. Oh yeah, yeah, no, this then, is, then get on the bot. Yeah, no, this is all on my own uh, dime. Um, I've got to get there. Yeah, you know, hopefully I can make it. Well, it, it is a tax deduction, so um, you know I, I'm going to. No, well, just in case, I've heard very good things about Thai Airways. I didn't know they flew to Germany. Uh, well, they actually fly to Italy, and then I've got to jump a pl- plane from Rome to Munich. So it's going to be long, long uh, days flying. But, yes, yeah, so on, on Friday night, it, it's, I was initially planning on having a little bit of uh, time just to crash, and I'm going straight to Freising. Um, and, but now I need to go because of the email I got on Friday night, uh, very late in the night, having given up any chance of getting to um, the Unzupfen um, and the Schottenhummel, which is the tent, the, the sort of very... Um, traditional beer tent, but I got it, and you'll you'll love this, Prof. And perhaps you can even read it in your Arnold Schwarzenegger voice, voice because I don't do accents. Um, dear Matt Kirkegaard, herewith declare I you accreditation. So <laughs> did it start with hear ye, hear ye? <laughs> no, but herewith declare I you accreditation. So uh, thank you, Laura Hoffman. So now I've got to uh, go straight. Dunker, Dunkerson. Yes, and I need to collect it in advance. Um, so I can get in. So, it's, oh, you don't reckon you could just turn up and just go? Don't you know who I am? <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. Um, I, tr- I tried that in Copenhagen once, thinking that Kirkegaard would open all the doors, and I couldn't even pronounce it right. So, uh, no. Ah, <laughs> oh, we loved you in the cherry tree. <laughs> <laughs> the cherry orchard. Sorry, the cherry tree is a pub. <laughs> oh, okay. So, uh, but yeah, no, I'm very, very excited. So, um, by the time everyone's listening to this, I will be knee deep in Lederhosen or deep in my knee high Lederhosen. Um, and uh, enjoying a couple of steins of the finest. Maybe even catching up with the Lord Mayor of Munich uh, for an interview and uh, certainly doing lots of good reporting for our uh, friends and listeners. But, Prof, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, I don't want to rub it in too much. Um, everyone can follow my travails and 
travels on uh, Facebook on the Brews News page, um, and I'll be posting to that quite regularly. Uh, but let, let's get on and uh, mate, any news for you this week? Uh, there were little, out? yeah, little bits and pieces. I did see a couple of uh, things cross my path that I thought might be of interest to uh, our listeners, particularly uh, given that uh, I guess our not our scepticism, but our, our cynicism towards, um, as we even mentioned in our last episode, uh, different awards. Um, did you did you happen to catch up with the the Drinks Association awards? Yeah, yes, yes, I did. I did. Um, now, you know, it, it, it's, it's one of those things. There are different awards, as we talked about, um, and, and congratulations to everyone that won awards at the International Beer Challenge. Um, I haven't heard anybody um, email me saying, thanks for shit-canning my gold medal. That's not what I was doing. I just don't know enough about it, as we said. And speaking of awards that we really don't know enough about, Prof, and need to find out, the uh, Drinks Awards, um, and of particular interest was... Uh, the, now, their categories are... Most loved brand, best presence in social media, best sales achievement, best innovation, best ad campaign, brand of the year, and supplier of the year. So I think it's fair to say that they're not really looking at the liquid um, in the bottle. These are beer marketing awards more than anything. Yeah, and we should point out, Drinks Association is a, a, an industry or a trade magazine, and they're the ones who sponsor the awards, aren't they? It is. It is, yes. Yes, they, uh, they, they sponsor the awards, and I believe that they, uh, the, the Drinks Association is largely funded by one or, or a couple of the big um, drinks companies. Um, so, yeah, but, I mean, again, that's, they're, they're celebrating what they do, I guess, which is very important. But the, the thing that stood out for me was the um, Best Innovation Award went to uh, Matilda Bay, uh, Lazy, uh, sorry, Wild Jack, um, Pacific Ale. Prof, uh, what are your thoughts on, on, on that little piece of news? That's probably the, the most interesting one for me because, I, and look, not having the criteria in front of me as to how the awards were um, nominated, judged, and then awarded, um, innovation. Look, strict dictionary definition, I would have thought something brand new, um, interesting, and, well, dare I say it, innovative. Uh, in, 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 I'm not sure that a, an ex, a brand extension of something that is already in existence is, is necessarily an innovation. Although, uh, as I say, we're probably outside of, of that particular bubble. So perhaps, you know, Malibu Stacey with a new hat. Um, is an innovation. But you got a new hat. Um, <laughs> but, well, the, the awards category is best Hugh innovation. Smithers. <laughs> the best innovation is judged on the following. Relevance, uniqueness, excitement, purchase intent. Um, oh, have you got, is that the... Criteria. That is the criteria. Yes, I'm uh, reading. Do, do our listeners have access to that, or is, is uh, I, I can you get link that to as it. A... No, no, I can link okay. to it. Um, and, and look, I, and I have to say, in the interest of full disclosure, um, uh, Wild Jack has just come on, and there's, they're taking some advertising out on Bruce News. So, um... uh, and look, in the interest of full disclosure, actually, we had a, a bit of a family celebration with um, birthdays, and uh, little uh, littlest Pilsner had her. Her confirmation on uh, on the weekend, so you know, had friends and rallies around, and I bought some Wild Jack because I'd had I'd had a, a wee sip of the, I guess the pilot batch uh, at, during Gabs in Melbourne, um, but I thought I'll give you know to a, an appreciative sort of audience, um, and it was interesting that the, uh, I guess you know outside the industry looking in people, uh, you know, the, the average punter was sort of like, how can you call it Pacific Ale? Isn't Pacific Ale a style? And so without rehashing all that that was interesting that was the first thing that that, that sort of came up 
Yeah, but well, it was very well received. It's a, look, it's a very well made beer. Um, I, I, I gave it to another uh, keen drinker who picked it as a as a pale ale. So I thought, okay, well, you know, that's and, and you know, he's, he's very much a, a mainstream lager drinker. So um, it, it's ticked a few boxes. Whether how innovative it is. Well, and, up for and for me, discussion. that's the thing. You know, we, we've talked uh, a lot in the past that Matilda Bay does make very good beers, and you know the, the beers that they're making out of. Oh, there's another six pack. You can't cut. You can't keep. You can't just keep cutting them out, mate. I keep turning it on so you can text me when you're ready to start recording, and then I always forget to turn it off. So I'm sorry about that. Um, and I did leave it in last week. You might have noticed on listening to the playback, Prof. Uh, I threatened to cut it out, but uh, I did leave it in so everyone knows. Um, the, look, yeah, the uh, Matilda Bay makes very good beers. Um, I, I tried it recently, and it is a you know it's, it's a very drinkable, very lovely, very well made beer. Um, I, I guess for me, the thing about it is um, look, looking at the name Pacific Art. My understanding is that um, because CUB, under a previous incarnation of their ownership, had Pacific Beverages, um, they had the trademark for that. And when Stonewood went to trademark Pacific Ale, there was an accommodation that can be reached under the trademark leg- legislation that allows them to share or allows a, a, a usage, um, and that gave CUB and CUB only the right to use Pacific Ale, uh, bearing in mind that in the passing off action, uh, Stonewood lost, but that wasn't about the trademark, and the trademark is still to be determined. Um, uh, but anyway, so they, they've got the right to use Pacific Ale, and they've created a beer that is very much like Stonewood Pacific Ale, um, and have decided to call it Pacific Ale. And they're quite apart from the quality of the beer, which is very good, um, it is very much derivative. Um, in fact, derivative, a knockoff um, of Stone and Wood. They've created a beer, and no one owns a beer style or a beer category. And let's not go into that whole thing of yep. um, styles. Um, but yeah, look, all of those things taken into account, innovation is a little bit um, of a stretch. Um, I mean, my understanding, I, I remember back, I think it was when 150 Lashes came out, which was about nine months after Stone and Wood launched Pacific Ale. Um, Squires brought out 150 Lashes, which was very much Pacific. an homage. Yeah, an homage <laughs> to it at the time. Um, this isn't an, this isn't a, an homage. This is you know Abba, um, you know at, at, what it was Bjorn again. Bjorn again. Yeah. So no, it's not even a homage. It is a direct copy of, um, and just not quite as you know Danish or no Scandinavian Swedish. Swedish, um, yeah, and so do you reckon? Like, it, it, just question without notice, but it, didn't they already have this beer? Like, it, to me, it's very much the ducks, um, in that light. You know, hop forward, aromatic. Um, you know, showcase for Galaxy Hop, uh, light, easy drinking, sound sub four and a half percent Australian style pale ale. Um, is this a case of okay, that's not working too well for us? But if we if we rebrand it as as in the Yak family, it, it gets a bit more traction. Or am I being too cynical there? Um, oh, see, I'd never really tried the ducks nuts. I don't think I ever because it was never really widely available up here. Um, so possibly, but yeah, I mean that they've decided. I'm surprised it's even listed as a Matilda Bay beer because Yak Ales has its own brand. Um, you know, it's got its own website, it's got its own Facebook page um, that's being updated, unlike the Matilda Bay one. Um, so, yeah, look, they've obviously decided that 
Yak Ales is the cut-through brand that Matilda Bay doesn't have. Um, and, yeah, look, good, good luck to them. Um, I, I guess it's very clever. They, they've got the ability to do it. And apparently it's already the number three craft beer brand in Australia behind um, 150 Lashes and Fat Yak. Um, there you go. Which, is, yeah, which shows that, you know, Prof, ultimately we know nothing. This is why oh, we're... Look, it, it, <laughs> yeah, when the rubber hits the road, at the end of the day, it's you know, the consumer um, you know, dictates, I guess, doesn't it, what, you know, what beer is, inverted commas, the best. The best, absolutely. And you know, we, we can pontificate all that we want, but that's why we've got a little podcast and uh, yeah, that's running it. a and that, that, international brewery. Yeah, so moving along, that's the only sort of beer category out of the drinks association that would be of interest, and we can perhaps link to the others for those who are interested to find out who won the other major awards. Yep. Okay, well, I'll just throw a couple of other things across my desk at you. Um, a media release introducing Once Bitter, the brand-new local craft beer straight out of Collins Street Brewing. But I didn't know there was a brewery in Collins Street. I don't think there is. There are lots of offices. With is that, it from the? Perhaps it's from the um, the Oregon end of Collins Street rather than the Paris end of Collins Street. <laughs> Look, I don't know, but it's uh, once bitter with such a wonderfully enticing story behind the brand, including a rebellious step away from the traditional school experiences. Milk bottle project simply couldn't. Ign- oh, so this is milk bottle. Pro- this is the PR company announcing why they couldn't say no to somebody paying the money to promote them. Um, <laughs> Once Bitter launches into the Australian craft beer market. Once Bitter is a story that begins years ago in a religious boarding school. Zev Meltzer shared a passion for beer, but his new halls of residence certainly didn't encourage his enthusiasm for brewing. Years later, I'm paraphrasing here, years later Meltzer returned to Melbourne and was working in the finance sector. Life was predictable, but the fire in his belly still burned. He quit his job after three long years and launching Collins Street Brewing Company and his flagship beer, Once Bitter was born and a very personal expression of bucking the trend and following your passion, but seemingly not building a brewery. Um, so anyway, apparently you can get it in Melbourne. Have you? Has it come across your... Uh... Uh, first, I've heard of it, Matt. Okay. Um, but I, I'll, I'll look into it. Okay. So it's a, it's a beer brand rather than a... It's not a new brewery. It doesn't yeah, say. I, I, it, it doesn't say. That it's Collins Street Brewing. I didn't know there was there's a... That'll be an office. That'll be an office. Um, so um, Yeah, uh, address. Okay, now it's it's described as an urban ale. Now, not a Pacific we, ale. Oh, okay. It's okay, urban, urban ale. ale. Somewhere between an Aussie golden ale and a Belgian blonde, ABV 4.5%. Hops, Mochueca, Galaxy, Southern Cross, Citra, Cascade, and a secret dry hop. Wheat, malt, wheat, Pilsner and Vienna, yeast, American ale yeast. So, you haven't heard of it, Prof? Apparently it's, uh, I mean, it's a bitter is available at Papa Goose, Saint and Rogue, Corn and Co., the Smith, Pran. Carlisle Wine Bar, Subu Bar, the Workers Club, Bobby Peels, I don't know, whole string of bars apparently. Prof, you might have to check it out and report back. I will. I will. Um, another one. Now we were talking, now we've only got a couple of minutes before our guest joins us, so we'll see if we can dispose of this one very quickly. Um, another media release that came out this week. Uh, Dear Mr. Kirkegaard, my name is blah, 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 and I'm emailing, emailing you on behalf of Cleminger Consulting to see if Australian Brews News would be interested in being involved in the promotion of a crowdfunding campaign that we are running on behalf of the beer and cider company Thorny Devil. Curiously, beer is not capitalised and cider is. Um, so it's beer, lowercase, and cider, capitalised brand Thorny Devil. In case you haven't heard of them, Thorny Devil beers and ciders are made in the Cape Bouvard Brewery in Mandura, West Australia. And I have heard of them, Prof. They uh, won a couple of Bronze and is that, that Mandra for our uh, Mandra, WA sorry. listeners? Yes, I'm going to get emails about that, aren't I? Um, Maybe. I'd, what, anyway. Um, a brewery renowned for using rainwater as opposed to tap water. 
Um, not the only one, I might add. And uh, also last week we talked about snowmelt. But anyway, um, Thorny Devil has been become known and loved for combining premium ingredients from Germany with time-honoured beer-making techniques. Um, as a result, Thorny Devil has recently acquired a number of awards, blah, blah, blah. Attached is a press release which will provide more information about this much-loved brand and its ongoing success, as well as a number of photographs of the beers and awards. But details of our crowdfunding campaign, which, readers, you might remember, we were just asked whether we wanted to be involved in, um, will come in an upcoming press release. So that's a new one, Prof. Um, not only is it a crowdfunding campaign, but it's a public relations agency that has been engaged to promote the crowdfunding campaign, and we've been asked to get involved in the crowdfunding campaign without even knowing <laughs> what is being crowdfunded. It could have been worse. It could have been we're crowdfunding to start up a crowdfunding campaign. <laughs> yeah. It's only we're, a short step away from that. We're crowdfunding But we can't tell you about it yet. To get a PR agency to manage our crowdfunding campaign to get our brewery. Um, now, Prof, actually... Well, we, the, assume it, we assume it's for a brewery. I, as I say, I, I'm not familiar with no, uh, Thorny no, Devil no, no, other no. than uh, reading about them in the um, Craft Beer Awards uh, most recently in in Brisbane back in um, in June uh, or July, but I'm not I'm not familiar with um, with their their product. Uh, no, yeah, me uh, me either. So uh, anyway, I'll reveal details of the crowdfunding campaign in an upcoming thing. But I thought it was quite interesting. And I, just I was reflecting on the chat that we had when I was uh, editing last week's podcast. Um, you, you said that uh, Mazen Hajar likes to say that you know breweries, uh, um, restaurants don't open and say that you know would somebody pay for our kitchen. I was actually thinking that prof, and there are a whole lot of examples where you know bars and coffee shops and brewery and um, restaurants do exactly that. You know they'll stick with a coffee brand in return for having the coffee machine um, done, or they'll stop yeah, yeah. Coke and get the Coke fridge. Because and you it, get the Coke, yeah, or and, the, and, or the and, Postmix and machine or whatever, yeah. There, there are a lot of restaurants that do run various, you know, I won't call them scams, but you know, um, deals where, you know... If there business are, arrangements. Business arrangements where, you know, if, if they're a celebrated chef, often um, oven companies or, you know, cooking equipment companies will put their stuff in, particularly the, in these, these days of the open kitchen, because if they've got a domestic... Um, version of the version, yeah. they'll, they'll do it, and you know you you, you always see Schmeg or Ilvi and you know doing the the, the cooking stage thing. So they're, they're, you know I, I don't know that Muzzin is entirely right in saying um, you wouldn't see this in a restaurant um, because you, you do see exactly that sort of yeah not a, not in a startup though you're not going to just oh I'm, I'm, it's not... always been my dream you know I've I've had ten minutes on MasterChef got booted off on the first episode um, it's been my dream to open a restaurant people aren't going to come running and and throwing equipment at you. I don't know. Well, I actually think that's when you, you do see, you know, when you've got that buzz and that excitement that you do see people actually jumping on board. Mm. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, so I, I just thought I'd throw that in, but uh, that was another media release, so um, let me see. Oh, well, good luck to them, and let's, let's we'll follow their um, crowdfunding with interest. And, uh, Prof, the last little bit of uh, news that uh, I've got, um, another email I received this week, and it segues quite nicely with our guest today, although I don't think we'll uh, bother putting it to him. Um, I got an email. Uh, Hi there, my name is there, and I'm writing because while conducting some research into craft beers, I came across Brews News. Craft beer has become the perfect rebellion against large brewing beverage corporations and the blandness of their products. Nice little... Uh, yeah, give it a swipe. Yeah, give it a swipe. What's your point? <laughs> yeah, can't get to the... And, uh, yeah. uh, now, hundreds and thousands of individuals and what are, you selling? are making their own independent <laughs> products, but it would not be possible to maintain year-round production and high quality without one item. 
My friend Chris has always fancied himself as a bit of a drinks connoisseur, especially of beers and ciders. So it was no surprise to see him buy a craft beer kit, blah, blah, blah. His biggest uh, worry was the weather, for he could only see himself using the best of fresh hops, and Britain's weather is hardly reliable or good year-round. Um, I'm still not quite sure where this is going, Prof. Recently, we no. discovered that LED lights can be used to grow out-of-season hops, and so decided to turn our discoveries into an article. You can read it here. Energy-efficient, low-cost, and highly effective... And we think many crafters would love to know about more how these bulbs can help them. I thought you might be interested in reading my work after reading uh, and a link to a Brews News Craft Beer Awards. It would be fantastic if you could use my article and the use of LEDs in growing hops. I mentioned on your site because many of your readers will love craft beer and year-round good taste as much as you and I. It's a bit presumptuous. Mm. That, that I, Of course, I'm more than happy to write a short introduction on the same topic. Just let me know what you prefer. And these guys happen to sell LED lights. Um, I thought it was his friend Chris. No, no, he makes beer, but um, apparently he they sell LED lights. So oh, no. oh, sorry, I, 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 got, I got lost in that one somewhere. Yeah, no, well, me too. But essentially, they're everyone's trying to flog LED lights at the moment. They're, they're trying to sell LED lights every second week. Somebody coming around to you know, swap them over. So no, <laughs> no. Oh, but these ones are used. Yeah, but the ones you're trying to flog me are cheap Chinese knockoffs. And they're crap quality. So, yes, they're much more efficient uh, until I've got to buy seven of them a year. Yes. And, and you know, not only do they fixture. save you from falling down the stairs in the dark, but now you can oh, grow hops free. year round. Um, <laughs> I, I can grow hops. I, I thought hops kind of grew all year round anyway, Matt. Well, I, I don't think they suggesting? Can I, just, can I just point out that I, I think if you, you know, uh, had to sign the little declaration um, for your import to say uh, hydroponic lights for growing inverted commas hops um, that you might end up on border security. Uh, you think that might be the angle. You reckon that they're trying to flog them off to people who might use other sorts of uh, light-grown relatives yeah. of hops and, and not be. actually hop-growing themselves. Because, yeah, and uh, not have to, yeah, you know, um, you pinch your neighbour's power supply to, uh, <laughs> to run it. Okay, okay, so it's hops. Energy-efficient so... hydroponics, uh, not hydroponics, um yeah, hydroponics. In, in, in another time, uh, in another career, um, as a young law clerk, um, code word when you're speaking on the phone for uh, drug deals was motorcycle parts. So I'm, <laughs> I've got some motorcycle parts to sell. Um, so you think that hops might be a, uh, a, an alternative for that? Well, I'm just thinking out loud. Who knows? Well, look, I'll, I'll flick it on to AJ and just get his thoughts about whether um, large-scale hydroponic or large-scale <laughs> LED hop growing is something that HPA is interested in. But, yeah. Prof, that, that, that ties us in nicely um, to our guest today. And uh, Dr Simon Whittock, who's the hop breeder for HPA, um, delivered a paper at the recent craft brewing conference looking at hop flavour and the way that they're redefining hop flavour and also the way that they're really trying to come to terms with how hops and hop flavour emerge into the beer. So um, I thought that would be a really good uh, chat to have with Simon a little bit about that. Um, so how about we get in and uh, we, we probably won't talk hydroponics and uh, LED this time, um, but I have a bit of a chat about hop flavour. And yes, Prof, that little story that we... Uh, started with leads very nicely into our guest today and that's uh, Dr Simon uh, Wittock uh, from Hot Products Australia. Um, welcome to the show uh, Simon. Thank you Matt. Mate look 
I, I think you must have one of the most impressive titles uh, of anybody that's been on the show, and that is Hop Breeder. Can you tell me a little bit about you know, what a Hop Breeder does? That sounds a little bit like goat herding. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I've got a, well, it's actually, a, it's a new cultivar development program, uh, which has been running in Australia sort of since the 1950s. Bill Nash started it uh, with CUB. We take the process of traditional plant breeding, so taking male plants and female plants, doing crosses, evaluating seedlings, all the way through to uh, selecting likely candidates for new cultivars, evaluating them, and preparing the plant material for deployment and then um, extend into backing those cultivars into um, commercial production and marketing them you know, for sale in Australia. So I've got roles across all of that. There's always been, uh, you know, we have seen hop um, research and hop development um, because we've, we've developed a, a whole range of hops over the years um, and we've seen a whole lot developed recently. Have we seen with the growth of craft brewing an increased focus on research going into not just breeding but the chemistry of hops and, you know, to, to get a much better understanding of, of the role of hop in beer flavour? Yeah, I think that's definitely the case, uh, particularly since uh, I suppose the research must have kicked off a little earlier, but certainly since about uh, 2010, I guess there's been a lot more coherent information about how hop chemistry influences beer flavour. And, and I've always been a little bit of standard. I always get a little bit upset at the focus that's given to wine, you know, across the whole spectrum from the from the drinkers area. But the, the wine industry seems to have invested very, very heavily in really understanding the science and chemistry of its ingredients and the, the, the ground and the uh, you know, and has become very good at communicating, like for example, the health benefits of, of wine and the the, the flavour compounds in wine. We haven't seen that same level of focus on research in the ingredients industry for beer, or at least it hasn't been um, publicised nearly as well. Is that, do you think that's a fair um, categorisation of the two industries? I tend to share that view a little bit. I came to, uh, to the hop world out of, uh, out of the forestry industry. That's where I did my uh, breeding training. And what I sort of saw when I first started was that it was quite insular and closed and it we, you know, we weren't really good at drawing, um, drawing on the lessons that were, you know, from the public literature on wine flavour and things like that. At that at that time, it's certainly changed a lot now. People are recognising that there are distinct synergies there, and that a lot of the flavour science and fermentation science is applicable. Um, so yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. You know, the more the more outward looking we get, and the more we we take a broader view of the um, knowledge that's out there from other other systems, then yeah, we'll, we'll actually it will improve what we understand. It will improve our understanding and how we go about our research. That's for sure. And, and there seems to be, you know, I, I'm aware. You know, well, we've had the Institute of Brewing and Distilling. They have uh, regular conferences, um, and we see a lot of discussion about um, the you know, research that they've been doing. But the research seems to have been around you know efficiencies in the brew house and um, consistency, and you know, really controlling the, the, the brewing process much more so than looking at the ingredients and the way the ingredients contribute to flavour and the, the elements of flavour in, in, in beer. Um, is that a fair summary as well? 
for, yeah, for the I'd brewing agree. industry? I'd, I'd agree again. I think that you know, for so long, the focus was definitely, uh, particularly with organisations like EBC and IBD, the, their um, shareholders or stakeholders, if you like, their focus was on mass production um, beers. And so their, their whole focus was on um, process control and process efficiency. Uh, and you know, the hops they were using, they were generally using for bittering. So the questions there about flavour impact were of relatively minor uh, minor importance, um, and you know the, the the research questions with value for those guys were something else at the time. I think that's um, that's, that's definitely changed now. And commodity bitterness, I guess, would be the uh, the other factor. They're not really looking at the flavour um, of the that's hops. Right. That that was driving hop at the time, and that that you know. So I think the R and D and hop suffered for that. So it must be an exciting time to be working in the hop industry then at a time when hops really are the rock star of the uh, the, the, the craft industry. Yeah, I think I think I got I'm quite privileged I think to have landed in this role right at this this time. Um yeah, there's certainly yeah, lot, lots of interesting stuff, lots of interesting information available and lots of interesting work to do. Um yeah, it's great. And as part of your, you've got the breeding program, but you've also been involved in some uh, studies into the the, the, the flavour compounds that come from hops and the way that they translate into into beer. And you've been working with the University of Tasmania, um, amongst other uh, bodies, um, and, and you presented at the uh, craft beer industry uh, craft brewers conference. Yeah, so we've. We've had a pretty long-running research relationship with the University of Tasmania with some researchers there, and that over time, it's sort of changed from uh, work on breeding systems to include molecular genetics. So we're looking at DNA fingerprinting and molecular markers for particular traits. Um, that helped us get a really good understanding of the hop genetic material that we work with in our breeding programs, um, and we saw an opportunity to do some novel work, some really novel research and integrate what we understand about hop genetics with some of the newer knowledge around uh, the flavour compounds from hop and how they, uh, how they influence beer flavour. So that's our current project. Um, we're working, working on public publication. So, uh, you know, one of the things that we aim to do with our research is not necessarily keep it internal. We want to use it to give people useful information as well as ourselves. Um, so we, we're, we're committed to publishing the research that we conduct with the University of Tasmania and that'll be coming through in the next 12 to 18 months, I guess. I guess that's the other thing that we've seen. HPA is much more than just a grower or industry supplier these days. Uh, HPA is invested heavily in these sorts of research, but also communicating to the industry um, how their research and how their hop development um, can benefit um, e even the smallest brewers. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for, for us, the reason, one of the reasons why we conduct research of the type that we're talking about um, is that it will form our thoughts about how to produce hops of the highest quality irrespective of, you know, it'll influence the varietal selection. So if we make make decisions about a new cultivar to deploy, we'll use what we know about hop chemistry as part of that decision-making process, but it will also influence um, our decisions about timing of harvest and post-harvest handling, which have a massive influence on the quality of the hops that the brewers end up with. 
So definitely, I think there's a direct influence from this research on brewers' ability to make good beer. Now, we will get in and start talking a little bit about the technical questions. I And I say up front, um, Simon, I'm a, um, an art student. I'm an arts graduate. Um, so if some of these questions are a little bit basic, I could try and tell you it's because we're trying to sort of make it at our listener um, level, but it's actually at my level. But before we do that, Prof, is there anything that you wanted to, to jump in and uh, ask Simon before we uh, get into the uh, nuts and bolts? Yeah, just quickly, Simon, we spoke, I think it was about five years ago now, and maybe one of our first five episodes, we spoke to Tim Lord. And back then, it was, um, I guess, the, the key takeaway from that was that the uh, hop industry as a whole was kind of taking its cue from this uh, the, the growing, the fast-growing craft beer uh, community, saying, you know, these are the hops that they want to sort of put in their beer. I've noticed now, particularly with this presentation, that there seems to be not a shift back, but there's a, a more, uh, you know, let's, let's take this journey together kind of approach in that... Um, not that the hops are now coming with an instruction manual, manual or, or operating guidelines, but they're certainly more about, okay, well, we've produced these hops based on uh, you know, what you're telling us your drinkers want to um, find in their beer. There seems to be now we're, we're moving to, and here's the optimum way to, I guess, you know, when to add them, how much to add them, temperature, yeah. um, headspace, yeast, yeah. interactions, all those sorts of things. Are we, are we moving towards a more, I guess, hand-in-hand approach? Uh, yeah, in a sense. We've, we've wanted to, at HPA, for a long time to be much closer to our brewing customers and their requirements. And we've worked to try and provide more relevant information around the hops that we have um, for you know for brewers to allow them to use them in the best way possible. Um, sort of at the same time, I guess the craft industry in Australia has been maturing, and certainly the questions that we're getting from um, a lot of craft brewers now aren't necessarily ones that we used to be getting around availability or um, particular variety. You know, is is are there hops of a particular variety available? We're getting questions along the lines of, at what, uh, you know, what dwell times, what temperatures do I use, what temperature do I add the hops at, what stage, you know, how do I get the best out of my dry hopping and things like that. So there are a lot more um, precise, there are a lot more technical questions that we're getting. So we're hopefully positioning ourselves to be able to provide, you know, those, those answers that are specific to particular sort of brew house or engineering solutions. I hope that's a useful answer for you. Yeah, no, perfect. Mate, so in, in moving on to hops themselves and, and the research and what you've discovered, I, I guess a very basic um, level, we need to talk about what we mean by flavour when, when, in, when it's in, in, used in terms of hops. So what are we talking about when we're talking about um, hops having flavour? So, yeah, okay. So the, the flavour came... Our use of that term, I guess, came from our frustration at the sort of old-fashioned description of hops as either aroma or bitter hops. Uh, our our research data were, just didn't fit those that that sort of binary distinction. We had hops that were high alpha acid hops. Uh, yet you clearly uh, clearly had a, a an aroma or a flavour impact in beer. Yet you could, weren't able to call them an aroma hop because they were you know, they weren't sort of 6 or 7% alpha and things like that. You know, Galaxy's the case in point there. So we, we went looking for a term that we could use to, that 
reflected more accurately what those hops actually did in beer. Um, and I guess in Australia at least that was at the same time as you know beers like IPAs were starting starting to sell uh, more and were more popular, you know, both with brewers and with customers. So you know that 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 flavour concept where you're combining um, the 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 aroma compounds, so the 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 what you smell with actually what you feel as you as you drink it, what you put down your mouth and and in, you know in your retronasal sort of stuff. We thought that that fitted pretty well, and it, it's you know I, I don't know if there's a better term, but it certainly sits better than the the sort of loaded concept of an aroma hop. But that's one of the things I've, I've really enjoyed about your presentation. And uh, you used a quote from Simran Sethi that said, flavour is the moment when what we put in our mouths and what we smell converge. Um, and HPA has come out with a uh, flavour spectrum that, it, to my understanding, is fairly unique. Um, or, or it was certainly a, a, an innovation um, when, when you brought your hop flavour spectrum out. Yeah, we really wanted to... Uh, what we saw was hop producers generally talked about hops in isolation. They talked about what the hop, if you went and gave a rub and sniff of the hop, they talked about what that hop would smell like and they talked about the qualities of the aroma based on rubbing and sniffing hops. And we, that, that grated with us somewhat because it wasn't, we know, um, yes, there are um, similarities between what you can smell in a raw hop and what you actually um taste when you when you have have a, a well hopped beer but we really wanted to give people something that described more accurately what they were going to get if they used hops in beer as opposed to describing the hop you know in isolation so that, that that's what pushed us to develop that flavor spectrum and put that information out there Simon, I noticed too that there's a uh, within the presentation there's a, a shift away or or combining aroma and also referring to odor. Um, is that again to I guess break down that preconception about you know smell um, into a more compound um, based sort of thing, or is that really just to you know that odor is what everyone else is using around the world, so it's to kind of okay, simplify so, the message. Well, what I wanted to do um, using using odor. What I tried to do there was to uh, show that this work that we're doing, you know, on organoleptic performance of hop in beer, isn't in isolation. That there's plenty of broad-scale um, knowledge available on how to describe flavours. You know, we're talking outside beer and hop here. We're talking, you know, either people who've done sort of big holistic studies covering hundreds of different food groups and different odorants or different flavour active compounds and really have a look at the whole descriptive space for these things. So a lot of those studies are odour based um, and there are separate ones that are separate ones that are flavour based. Um, so I'll sort of, I guess what I was trying to do was make sure that there is at least you know, some understanding that these things are, can be specific and you know, rather than trying to lump it all together. Um, but I wanted to give people a feel for the, for the whole broad space and then work down to the particular influences of hop, I think, yeah. So that, that's what we were trying to do there. 
Okay, and looking at the, you, you also linked in your presentation to um, a whole lot of descriptors of flavour um, or descriptions of flavour, and uh, we might link to some of these articles as well. Are, are they? Um, there are a lot of journal articles there. Are they? They're all free. Journal I tried articles? really hard. Not every single one in there is, but I tried really hard to make sure that most of those articles that I've referenced are available to most people. Um, yeah, I, I tried to make sure, but there was a couple that were too good to ignore. Um, you know, they might be behind a paywall, but for someone who really wants to uh, get some knowledge around this stuff, they're they're not terribly expensive to purchase one off, or not to even you can sort of pay a higher fee these days. You can have a read and leave it if you want to. Okay. Uh, well yeah. Well, we might link to, to some of them, but just in the very quick summaries, we might look at, um, just just talk to us a little bit about odour descriptors and odour maps. All right. So basically, these are a big multivariate data analysis where you take, um, you're either taking descriptors and intensity scores and working out what lies behind the intensity score or what's most tightly associated with an intensity score or you're taking lots of different descriptors from lots of different um, substrates so foodstuffs or beverages and you're working out what descriptors co-occur and, and visualizing that um, it gives you some concept of uh, maybe whether they've got related chemistry or whether you've got um, uh, you know, flavour reception or aroma receptors that are working uh, working off the same same pathways, if you like. Um, so they they give you an idea of the range that the hop has within that whole broad spectrum. I guess if you take a look at the slides that I've got, you can see that there's uh, an odor odor map there that has um, sort of in theory, it's covering a really broad range of descriptors, but um, the, the descriptors that you get from HOP will basically cover nearly all of that range, um, which I think is pretty remarkable. Mm. And, and we'll certainly share that. So, uh, listeners, this is a, a bit of a scratch and sniff episode. Uh, the, the show notes will be a very uh, useful companion um, for you to read when you're not listening to us in the brew house or in the car or the train to work, um, which is where a lot of people uh, listen to us, Simon. Um, yeah, um, you had a slide, considerable effort required to understand which compounds are responsible for perception of flavour. Uh, maybe you can talk us through a little bit about um, that because I, I was fascinated. I know that Prof mentioned off air that um, when you start seeing uh, descriptors like or process descriptors like aroma extract dilution analysis, headspace gas chromatography, olfactometry, Olfactometry. That's it? <laughs> yeah, so I guess there's a, it's really easy to claim that you have a, have a, a flavour and that you see a particular or variation in a particular compound associated with variation in that flavour. But to definitively prove that, it, there's a whole heap of sort of science you have to follow through to check off the different um, steps, logical steps along the way. Um, and so uh, I guess that slides in there because it's, this is something that I myself am not particularly interested in doing. And you know, this, the research relationships that we have 
we're certainly not geared up to do this. I was kind of making sure that people understood that we don't own this space. Um, this, is, this is the sort of work that is done. Um, there's other people doing this work way better than we could. Um, yeah, so basically you've got to go through that process. You've got to isolate individual compounds and you've got to determine that they do have sensory relevance. Um, and then you've got to, you know, the ones that are, are relevant, you've got to concentrate, you've got to make sure of your chemical identification. Um, then you can go through that process of calculating an aroma value through dilution analysis. Um, and then, so by the time you've gone through that, you've got a fair idea that you've got a compound that is corresponding to a particular uh, flavour. So what what you do then is you actually go away from the natural raw material and you get synthetic compounds and you try and reproduce the uh, aroma profile uh, accurately using synthetic compounds. Um, that tells you part of the story and then to do the, um, the, the check in reverse, I guess, if you like, is you put together a mixture of compounds that you think is responsible for the aroma or flavour and you work through a systematic emission experiment. So you, you're, you're making absolutely certain that there aren't any synergistic effects or that you understand any synergistic effects that are there. Um, it's a fairly convoluted process um, to be 100% correct on this. And like I said, there are labs in the world that do this far better than we could the way that we're set up. Simon, moving um, then yes. from, oh, sorry, from, moving oh, then from the, oh, go on, no, please. The lesson, the lesson out of that, I guess, I've got it on the slide, is you know, that it's really easy to do the gas chromatography and identify a lot of different compounds, either from hop or from beer, you know, volatile compounds. Um, you know, and I think the, the number that people have said, you know, across all the food groups that have been studied to date, there might be 10,000 volatile compounds that are known, but only 350 of those volatile compounds are known to be um, aroma or flavour active. So it's pretty easy to, to do the chromatography and get lost in the variability when, you know, if you, um, you, you can really focus in on a few key compounds, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Looking at uh, key compounds, I, I guess um, I'm going to throw a couple of uh, compounds at you um, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about what they are and what you uh, have discovered about them. Uh, alpha acids. Now everyone's heard of an alpha acid. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what they contribute to flavour. All right. So there's the well. Obviously, there's the well-known uh, the, the bittering properties of the alpha acids. They're pretty well characterised. Um, people understand uh, the utilisation curves, and they understand the influence, the temperature influences on isomerization, which um, ensures you actually get the bittering units through into the beer. Uh, something that's probably a little less well understood is that when you have oxidised alpha acids, you get the formation of compounds known as humulinones, which are soluble without isomerization, and they are thought to be, you know, they, they contribute bitterness, but it's not a, not a nice bitterness generally. So um, there's there's more understanding to come from research, not necessarily from ours, of how those how oxidised alpha acids influence um, bitterness in beer. That, that's interesting. So dry hopping can impart an unpleasant bitterness. Uh, if, the hops, if the hops are badly oxidised, yeah. 
So it's a hop quality, it becomes a hop quality issue. Wow. Okay. Um, next, comp and I, I, I'm uh, feel, feeling like I should be putting the white coat on uh, while we talk mm -hmm. about this part. Um, polyphenols, and, and another one that a lot of people would be uh, aware of. Yeah. So polyphenols is I find it a really difficult term to get my head around because the there's a massive range of compounds in this class. Um, they're pretty well understood to um, have some influence. They have they have a, uh, a kind of a mouthfeel influence, and they can. Some of them definitely have an astringency. Uh, we, we've actually seen some trial beers brewed just with hop leaves, and they definitely had. You wouldn't call it a, a bitterness, but it was definitely an astringency there. It's a little bit different to the bitterness you get from alpha acids, and I, I put that down to some of the polyphenols that occur in the leaves. Um, these, these compounds are typically associated with, you know, with the the chlorophyll components. I guess you know the green bits on the plants. Um, yeah. So I, I, my understanding of how these compounds work is probably this is probably the weakest group that I, or group that I've paid the least attention to. But they definitely, the scientific literature suggests that they can be important. I guess um, there's particular compounds where you might see the influence of those particular. Uh, Cultivars, rather, where you might see the influence of these varieties more so than others. Okay. Now we might need. I might need a little bit of help with uh, the pronunciation. Come on, mate. No, have a go at it. Okay. Uh -huh. Come on, I've been practicing. Sesquiterpenes. Sesquiterpenes. First of all, how do yeah. I go? One eight hundred. How's my pronunciation? <laughs> so these are the higher molecular weight um, aroma compounds that you might find in the essential oil of hop. I think most people are familiar with looking at a chemical profile of hop that includes caryophylline and humulene, uh, farnesine and selenine. So they're, they're the better known sesquiterpenes, I guess. And there's really strong evidence coming through in the scientific literature now. Um, a lot of it's out of um, the, the University of Leuven in Belgium, uh, Sonia Collins' lab. They've, pretty, they've got some really definitive studies showing that oxidized products from the hop sesquiterpenes are responsible for a spicy fraction in a hop. Uh, you get the oxidized compounds specifically through wort boiling. So if you, you, you're dry hopping, you're less likely to pick these things up. But certainly if you're adding hops in the kettle or even in the whirlpool, you, you're going to, if you've got the right precursors there, you're going to get a spicy fraction through. Okay, uh, now monoterpene, terpenoids, monoterpenoids. So these are, so terpenes are formed from uh, what, what's known as an isoprene subunit. So the monoterpenoids are basically that they've got one isoprene subunit in there. Um, you know, sesquiterpenes have several uh, terpene, uh, isoprene subunits in them. You can get diterpenes, so on and so forth. Uh, so monoterpenoids, we're specifically talking about uh, things like linalool, geraniol, and citronellol. Um, uh, I guess they're the monoterpenoids that we understand to have flavour impact um, and an origin from hop. There are other monoterpenoids in other, other systems that are flavour active. Uh, so they're typically, well, but, well, linalool, geraniol, and citronellol are monoterpene alcohols, if you like. Uh, so uh, there's 
pretty there's very very strong evidence that the sort of the the base for hop character in beer uh, is a combination of uh, of monoterpenes like myrcene and monoterpenoids like linalool and geraniol. Um, geraniol and citronellol you're not going to get from every hop, and um, citronellol particularly you only get uh, with interaction between hop and particular yeasts is my understanding. That's interesting. So it, it, it's not just the out-and-out -out hop addition, it's the uh, integration or the, the interaction between the, the hops and the yeast. Um, yeah, definitely. This is something that we're going to see uh, from researchers in the next few years, I think, is we're going to start to see people characterising uh, yeasts in terms of what they do to hop-derived precursors. Uh, it's the same... Uh, so. Sorry, it's a similar story. So some of these terpene aroma compounds really need yeast action to release them into the beer. But there's also another, I mean, the, another group of compounds, the, the thiols, the small low molecular weight sulfur compounds that are really, really intensely flavour active uh, that you can't, well, I won't say you can't, but they are really, really difficult to measure in hop largely because they're not there. What, what you find in hop are particular amino acid precursors for the thiols that um, are can, uh, biotransformed by yeast, releasing the thiols in the beer. And, only, and you'll need particular yeast to do that biotransformation. There's some yeast that just won't be competent to, to do that. So I think that's probably the, the, the bit that interests me most is that moving away from the the lab side of things um, and moving into the uh, the brewery side of things is that conveying of, of of these kinds of important elements to the brewer so that they can then determine on uh, you know reverse engineering that here's the beer I want to come up with so I need to look at the, not not just the timing of the hop addition and and which hops that I use which I guess are, are taken for granted but things like uh, you, you mentioned you know, temperature and duration of exposure and as Matt just brought up then the interaction with the yeast I think is the one that for me as a, a non-brewer is what is a bit of an eye-opener thinking okay that's not something I would have um, I guess considered a, an important element but you, you could be spending you know choosing the right hop and, and spending all that money getting the right amount of hop and then I guess kind of diluting your effect by by not taking into account these other factors yeah I think so and, and like I said this is this is sort of hot off the press research stuff I guess there's, there's been anecdotal evidence for this for a long time but people are starting to really understand the the chemical mechanisms behind it now. And I think you'll see our understanding of these systems um, really get tied down over the next sort of three to three to six years, I guess. As you know, I know, I know that there are, there's research going on now that, that will elucidate some of these pathways. And it's gonna be great to see, see that work published and actually you know, be able to understand those systems in a bit more detail. So I mean, now we, we will be linking to a lot of the um, resources, and uh, there is a lot of research going on. But I guess all of the things that we've talked about are going to translate into how hops are used in the brew house. Um, and, and what sort of things do we still need to come to to understand how what a brewer does in the brew house affects the flavours that are coming out of the beer? Yeah. Okay. So some of the some of the sort of questions that we deal with at HPA from brewers, you know, we, we've 
there's it's it's great to hear the questions, but one of the things that we see is that, particularly with larger established breweries, that they've got a particular um, piece of infrastructure, a piece of engineering, if you like, and they they're sort of limited in in the options that they have for how to do things without a, a massive sort of re-engineering job. So it's going to be really interesting to try and take some of this knowledge and work out. Um, and, and sort of help people work out what the best way to use hops in their particular setting is. I think that's going to be the interesting one. Um, you know, for example, I, uh, Peter Wolf's work with, um, I think, out of Oregon State University, uh, showed clearly that to get the most or the most efficient sort of dry hopping, you need to be able to uh, agitate or you know have flow in your uh, in your tank while you're dry hopping. And most brewery systems just are not set up well to provide that flow. So you either need to put an external tank in and pump to recirculate, or you need to have some way to actually stir the tank while you're dry hopping. Um, and you know, if you use carbon dioxide to to do that, you actually extract a lot of the volatiles out of the beer and into the headspace. Um, so that that's not the best option. So. You know, taking some of this knowledge and, and really working out the engineering solutions to make to to get the best out of people's existing systems, I think that that's going to be really interesting. Well, look, I, I'm um, conscious of the time. I, there's so much more that I'd like to cover, but we might even uh, look at getting you back. Um, and Prof, I was, I was actually thinking through all of this, um, this this sort of content would lend itself really nicely to a uh, live um, podcast with. Uh, calls from brewers um, that might be something that we can look at doing when I get back from Germany. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, you know, ha go through some of these things and have a live Q&A session, Simon, if you'd be up for that. Um, we we yeah. can certainly talk to OJ and the guys and see whether we can tee up something along yeah, those lines so we can... can... Have a go. I may not be able to give any definitive answers, but... <laughs> oh, oh, look, and, and quite often even just seeing what the uh, questions are. Um, yeah. That's... Sort of lets us know where to look and where to, um, you know, where we can do future episodes as well. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, is, is there anything else you wanted to talk about the research just before we finish for this particular episode? Oh, look, no, I think I think we've given it a, a good go. We've covered not necessarily the research that HPA are doing, but certainly where, you know, researchers around the world are, are looking at the moment and the way that, uh, and we've covered what might be, what more detailed information might be coming through in the next few years. So, in terms of what I was trying to do with that presentation in Brisbane. That was the main the main aim, if you like, um, was to give people a resource to go and go and build an understanding for themselves, if if that's their interest. <laughs> oh, look, I think even Simon, even starting that, or you know, particularly with so many new brewers coming in, and and uh, you know, the 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 hop de jour might be a uh, you know. Uh, Citra or Mosaic or whatever Simcoe at the moment, but understanding, I guess, um, for for the newer guys that there are, I guess, there's a lot more to know is just a great first step. Yeah, yeah. I guess um, I, the only point that I can may add to, I guess, what we were discussing, if you want a summary, then if you're looking at a kettle hop edition and the main impacts on flavour, they're going to be Myrcene, Little Little, maybe Geraniol and Citronella. And then if you're looking at uh, dry hop additions, then the, the thiols, the low molecular weight sulfur compounds, really, really come into play. So the way that I see it, in beer, if you want a hoppy character, 
you need to be getting that myrcene linalool combination and then your distinctive fruit characters are really supplied by the particular combination of, of geraniol, citronellol and thiols that you get in a, in a particular beer and that's going to be influenced by the yeast, the brew house, the types of hops they use and the way they use the hops. Wow. <laughs> yeah, oh, look, it, it, it's a little bit overwhelming, and you know, I'm, I'm thinking all of the um, you know experiments that, and, and things that brewers are doing with extracting sort of uh, hop oils, uh, and, and wondering what they're going to lead to, and what sort of research uh, pathways uh, we can get into just to understand this one ingredient. Mm -hmm. It's yeah, it's, it's well, it's complex. It's a you know, hop itself is really variable, so that makes. Um, makes it a complex question but then the, the you know the ways that brewers can put these things together are infinitely variable as well so uh, I think experimentally for us it's about trying to actually simplify it a little bit take variation out of the system but that doesn't mean that you know all the experimentation that's going on in the craft sector is great some you know it's um, people hit upon some fantastic combinations and I think, I think um, particularly the people who are successful do have some understanding and they use that knowledge to work out, um, you know, work out in the first place what might work together, what's this, what, what um, combination of uh, temperatures and addition times and yeast they need. But then they go through a process of refining their methods and, you know, often you find that those, one, those brewers who put that thought in um, that that effort in in the first place, and then go on to the extra step of refining through, you know, sequentially, end up with a really good product. Oh, that's probably a, a good place to to leave it, Dr. Simon uh, Whitock. Thank you very much for joining us on uh, Radio Brews News. Uh, we we really appreciate your, 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 the time you've taken to to explain some of these things to us, and uh, we'll definitely be uh, chatting to you again uh, before too much longer. And uh, yeah, even looking at doing a uh, a Q and A um, with. Brewers, so brewers can actually get into some of the uh, the nitty gritty that perhaps Prop and I haven't really um, dug into in in, in this uh, first episode. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Matt, and thanks, Prof. I'll look forward to hearing from you. In the garden, what a garden. Brews News is made possible by Brewpack, Australia's number one craft contract brewer. With over 100 craft beers and ciders on the roster and counting, Brewpack specialises in offering growing craft breweries a home for their packaged and kegged beer, no matter how crafty. Serious about handmade beers, and with an open-door policy, Brewpack's brewers love having passionate, hands-on partners in the brewery. Thinking about craft contract brewing? Think Brewpack. And uh, yes, we thank Brewpack for not only making a whole lot of great craft beers possible, but also for making this podcast possible. There we go, Prof. Uh, mate, that was that was fascinating. Um, Ooh, it was. It was, uh, yeah, um, a little bit. I had to. I, I was. I was running to keep up um, with with some of that. As I said, I'm a poor old uh, humanities student. And look, we pride ourselves here at, at Radio Brews News on, I guess, being um, well, all things to all people, and 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 offering um, a lot of information that is fairly trade or industry specific and and useful. Um, I think, look, there probably plenty of our listeners will find that interesting if they're just a, a drinker, or a, particularly if they're, you know, a home brewer, or a, and specifically, I guess, if you're a, a brewer. Um, perhaps if it's not, you know, if if technical specs and and that sort of thing, science of of hop growing and breeding is not your thing, then you probably, you know, look away now. Although yeah. we probably should have put that 
<laughs> at the beginning of the interview rather than at the end of it, but yeah. Um, yeah it's a little bit to look away. To 45 minutes, 37 seconds, if you're not into all the technical stuff, guys. Yeah, look, I think that's a little bit harsh because, I, you know, actually that goes into our mailbag, which we'll be coming to fairly soon. But, uh, you know, I, 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 I think most of our readers or most of our listeners, um, you know, we probably don't, where you say that we attract you know, all, all things to all people. I don't think, strictly speaking, we are. We're very much trade or serious enthusiast who wants to learn a little bit more, and I, I don't think we dug too deep in that. Um, you know, I think it was just on the right side of anyone who, like me, doesn't have a science background starting to take them into that next, uh, next level. To be fair, Matt, I think once we start mentioning things that we can only pronounce by reading them out phonetically <laughs> and having them... <laughs> written down in front of us, um, it's probably fairly technically heavy. Yeah, that's fairly true. But that leads us uh, quite nicely, Lockie, into our cards and letters. And regular correspondent and good friend of the show, Paul Pacey, writes, uh, Hi, Matt, I thought this article might possibly be relevant to your beer and food matching exploits. And he sent me a, a link to a sciencealert.com article, Scientists May Have Just Found a Sixth Taste. Um, I'm enjoying the recent podcast, especially the special edition with the discussion of grain and hops su- supply in the future. Tap contracts equals mega brew. Uh, tap contracts with mega brew equals bad. Hop grain contracts with suppliers equals good. Uh, I really enjoyed the chat with Stuart uh, from Voyager. He sounds like a bigger, bigger geek than me. Um, now, I think that's a nice case in point, Prof, that you know, uh, Paul's not a brewer or a, I, I think he may have done a little bit of homebrew, um, but he's certainly an enthusiast and uh, you know, likes getting into those slightly more technical, um, businessy ones. And I, I think a lot of, actually judging by the traffic for that um, brewers and growers um, chat that we did uh, back in Good Beer Week, which we put up recently record yeah. um traffic to that and yeah that's something that would really be of trade interest so um yeah so look I'd, hopefully that yeah. chat with simon was the same um that's about all we've got in cards and letters although i did see that following on from our chat about wild jack um paul commented uh uh in the james posted a story that wild jack hits the market Paul actually posted uh, on that, I'm drinking one now at the Grand Central Hotel. It's a Pacific Ale Clo with little aroma, no yeast taste, thinner mouthfeel, and a Carlton Dry-esque resiny finish at the back of the throat. Stoner would have nothing to worry about. Ooh, might be a little bit harsh, Prof. That's certainly not, not you know, I probably don't want to sort of, uh, judge too much. But it was I, fairly I, succinct, though, to be fair. It, it varies, very succinct, but I just sort of wonder how knowing if you're given that beer... Um, without knowing that it was Wild Jack, whether you might be a little bit kinder towards it in a blind tasting. You know, certainly it's not as fruity as hop. Anyway, we, we talked about all of this up the, up the front of the show, but yeah, Paul is a regular, um, and thank you very much for that comment, Paul. Um, just one last thing. Lockie, cue the plea for money. Please, sir. I want some more. What? What? for more? Yes, uh, um, Paul is one of our uh, patrons. Um, thank you very much, Paul. Um, you too, if you like the show, if you're a regular listener and you see value in what we do and maybe like to see us get a little bit of a reward um, or you know, prof get a beer or just you know, show a vote of thanks, 
you can jump on board and become a, not a Patreon because we turf them, um, but you can become a producer or an executive producer of the show um, for 5 or $10 a month. For $10 a month, you can actually nominate a guest that you would like to join us on air and ask some questions. So far, our uh, executive producers have only suggested guests um, and sent the questions without actually joining us, but we'd love to have uh, you guys on the show asking the questions for a bit of be a conversation yourselves. If you don't want to commit to a weekly or a monthly, I should say, a monthly uh, um, subscription to the show, you can just jump on and uh, make a one-off um, donation as well. And uh, certainly uh, with our thanks. And we should point out too, for uh, before we did um, give the Patreon uh, system the Tijuana, we did have some people who came on as executive producers and still have that sort of uh, in the bank that we're waiting for, for uh, either to suggest a guest or um, or to give us their questions. Absolutely. Or both. But uh, no, thank you very much to everyone that so supported don't the show. Um, it is, as I say in the uh, in the email I send, um, you know, Prof and I love doing this. This is one of the things that we enjoy you know, having these chats, but to know that people enjoy it. Um, and listen is is very gratifying, but to know that people are willing to give over some of their hard earned um, in thanks is you know it, it really is uh, very much appreciated. So thank you very much to those guys, Prof. Uh, now without any further ado, I, as we said at the lead of the show, I'm out of here. We do have a couple of shows in the can that uh, you and James Atkinson are going to be uh, topping and tailing or introing and outroing while I'm yes, gone. Yes, folks. Yeah. Stay tuned for the next couple of weeks. So James and I will um, will will steer the ship, and um, hopefully uh, do your good service justice, Matt, while you're uh, while you're on holidays. But hopefully too, we can also get in touch with you, or you can send us some snippets or some interviews, some postcards uh, that we'll be able to stitch in postcards, yeah, postcard yeah. from Oktoberfest. From Oktoberfest, don't, don't be a beer lichen. Don't don't be Make what? Sure you don't, a beer lichen. What's that? It's a it's a German word for. Um, uh, a, a person who's found unconscious on the Oktoberfest grounds. Ah, okay. I certainly won't be because I'll be uh, talking. Uh, one, of, that's one of the things I'll be uh, sort of talking about is the perception of Australians at Oktoberfest. Um, I'll be uh, finding out what exactly they think of the Australian tourists. But uh, and the other thing, Prof, is as as you told me off air, all good postcards are brief. Um, that seems to be a bit of a late motif for the listeners of this. Dry Brews News. Um, did I say that out loud, did I? Yeah, you did. I thought I just thought that. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, the, the essence of a good postcard is brevity. Yes, so it will be, it will, will be very brief. And uh, speaking of brevity... If I, uh, get an, if I get an A1 poster-sized postcard in the mail from here, <laughs> I'll be pissed off. I'll be cramming 100 words in where, in the space of 50, Prof. <laughs> Don't you worry about that. Um, but So, yeah, so thank you for holding the fort while I'm gone. Um, and uh, hopefully these will be up on Friday's allowing for the eight-hour time difference. Um, you'll be topping and tailing them. Lockie will be editing them, and then I'll be uh, posting them um, from my travels. But uh, we will but, still be coming. And Stu Whitecross will be sitting on the tractor waiting, so make sure you don't muck up the, uh, <laughs> the time difference. Yeah, exactly. So no, we, we don't want him getting anxious. So, Prof, uh, no, thank Getting you very dark, much for the still waiting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, no, uh, no worries at all. And uh, thank you for uh, uh, always good to chat and look forward to chatting to you when I get back. Um, 
uh, and having. We probably really should send you out with some umpa music, given that that's all you're going to be hearing for the next uh, week or so. But I am actually going to. I've got a special one, which is uh, not the chicken dance, but is the current incarnation. What, what the modern chicken dance is. So it's not going to be uh, roll out the barrel today. It's going to be. Uh, I'm not even going to try and pronounce it, but uh, I will post the words, um, and I'll be recording some great audio from Oktoberfest itself um, as I uh, have my. Um, recorder there. So, Prof, without any further ado, let's get out of here. Talk to you on the uh, other side. Done. See you, Matt. See you, listeners. Safe travels, Matt. On e flick, 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 wie ein Flieger bin so stark, 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 wie ein Tiger und so groß, groß, groß wie ein Giraffe, so hoch. And we're out. Have you had your shots? <laughs> shots? I'm going to Germany and Italy. What shots do I need? Well, I don't know. If you get bitten by a local or something, isn't it the same as you know, getting bitten by a local? Or I don't know. Don't they have, they have a lot of lot of um, immigrants and refugees flying through? You don't know what's oh, you know, oh, you, you, no, 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 Zika you, virus or something. Well, you could get that in Queensland these days, apparently. So just probably. Just well, in that case, go. have you had your shot? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, take care, and don't talk to strangers. Oh, mate, the whole point of going there is to talk to strangers. A stranger yeah. is a no, friend I you haven't met as soon as I said it. You were a stranger once, oh, Prof, and look God. at us. Although you're always shit-canning me, so yeah. you're a friend. I wish yeah, you were I made a that faithful sometimes. decision to change change the status. <laughs> no, no, I hope you have, have fun. Thanks, mate. Talk to you soon. See you, mate.